Wow. That was an amazing <coughs> choral procession. <coughs> I lost my voice somewhere through the singing. Yeah. Thank you, Wayne. <coughs> James chapter 2. There's a bit of an echo if you guys can just reduce that. That would be helpful. <coughs> this morning we return to our passage, and this will be the last time this year that we look at James and we'll resume sometime next year. We continue our focus on faith in chapter 2 from verse 14 through to 26, and James has raised concerns as to the quality of the faith which some of these believers say that they believe in God but never act upon that belief. As mentioned before, this is not a call to do something for Jesus. If you walked away the last two weeks thinking, oh, I've got to go to Bible study, or I've got to do this, then you've missed the point. The point is, check your faith, not do more. Doing what you're supposed to be doing is supposed to be a natural result of genuine faith. And if you're not doing, check your faith. The reason James does this is because there is a faith that can be orthodox in nature, but not salvific in its sense. There is a faith that possesses orthodox knowledge of the nature of God, but does not have any lasting value. James made this point, as we saw last week in verse 18 through to 19, especially verse 19. You believe that God is one? Well, you do well. You believe in a monotheistic God? You know what? Demons believe that also. So you are no different to a demon when you believe in the truth about God. So what if you know there is a triune God who exists as one? That doesn't mean you are saved. So what if you know there is a creator of all things and the sustainer of all things? That does not mean you are saved. So what if you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and has risen from the dead? That does not mean you are saved. Saving faith is a living faith. And James is after a faith that does not stop at a mere profession in an academic or an affirmation about a reality but a faith that has visible signs in its vitality. In our section this morning, we have two contrasting examples. James gives us two people to look at that will illustrate what living faith looks like. He says to this opponent in verse 20, Do you really want to be shown that faith apart from works is useless? Well, let me prove that faith will be shown in works. In other words, if there is living faith, 
If you are genuinely saved, then there will be visible works. Remember what I said, the theme of this book is that faith, maybe I should ask you, test number 10. What is the theme of this book? Anyone? Okay, you forgot it. I forgive you. I said it like 40 million times. Faith, no, works, good try, in wise acts of righteousness. Take note of how I worded that. Faith, works, wise, righteousness. Those are the four main themes in this book. So what James is trying to point out here is that there will be a demonstration of wisdom in righteous living when true faith is present. So to get there, he gives us two biblical examples of the kind of faith that he's speaking about. The outline for the section between verse 21 to 26 is very simple. The faith of Abraham, the faith of Rahab. That is it. I don't make up fancy outlines. I don't see the need to. Nobody will ever be saved by an outline. So I don't waste time in coming up with wise outlines. You could call it patriarchal faith and matriarchal faith. I like that better. The faith of Abraham and the faith of Rahab. We will only look at the faith of Abraham this morning. I said last week that verse 20 is the conclusion to this middle section, verse 18 through to 20 but also provides a transition into this next and final section, which is verse 21 through to 26. So let's read together. I'm going to read from 14 again just to give us a conceptual understanding of what is taking place here. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, the one that I've just spoken about, save him? The answer is no. If a brother or a sister, poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, 
was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James in verse 20 expresses probably the most emotion as, is the, as he has thus far. Oh, foolish person, do you really want to be shown that foolish and uh, um, uh, um, oh is indicative of the level of emotion used here? It's almost as if James is frustrated with the argument of the opponent. This is a terse attack on the one who thinks that you can claim faith and never demonstrate faith. Or make the claim that you have the works of the law and do not need anything else. This person, James says, is one who only possesses intellectual error and as a result of that has a moral failure before God. He cannot live in a way that pleases the Lord. Interestingly, in extra-biblical material, this word fool is equivalent in weight to the word rakah. Does that sound familiar to you? Matthew, where Jesus says, do not, call your, do not call someone a fool. James says, you are just like that guy. James almost seems a bit agitated. Do I really need to explain this to you? Do you want God to show you what this means? And then he jumps into two rhetorical questions. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works? And verse 25, in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works? Take, take note of the descriptive terms around these two people. Abraham, our father, Rahab, the what? Prostitute. He does this for a reason. There is a contrast between these two people. He go, goes from the father of the Jews to a decrepit um, Canaanite or Gentile woman who was a harlot. The common denominator between these two, though, doesn't matter how close you were to God um, with regards to the Jewish faith or how far you were from God as regards to the law the common denominator that brings him in a relationship with God is what? Faith. But both demonstrated their faith by means of work. The contrast cannot be greater. Abraham was the best of Jewish men, and Rahab was the worst example of women. She was a harlot. James says, both of them, take note of this, was justified by their works. And there should be wheels turning at this stage. In these two examples, James chose two specific events in the lives of these two people to showcase what the quality of their faith looked like in the midst of affliction. So, let's give attention to patriarchal faith that works. Abram's faith was a working 
faith. Immediately in verse 21, we are hit with a surprising question. Was not Abram our father justified by works? This verse caused Martin Luther much consternation. He was troubled by it. Why? Because he came to saving faith, understanding Paul in the Romans and Galatians, we cannot work our way towards God. And yet James says the opposite. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by faith? In fact, Luther was so convinced that this was an irreconcilable thought. He said, uh, uh, if anybody can reconcile this passage, I would give my doctor's beret to anybody that would reconcile James and Paul. <laughs> anybody that can figure this one out, I would take my credential of a doctor and give it to you. And I know there's some of you saying, oh, I've got the answer. No, it was his humble admission to say, I don't get it. We, we spoke about this yesterday. There's a limitation in our fallenness as humans. There are some things which are not clear in Scripture. And I'm sure that some of you are reading or sitting here thinking, what does he mean that he was justified by faith, by, by works? Surely we are not justified by works. Before I get to that tension, let's look at the first part of verse 21. <clears throat> was not Abraham our father? Pause there. Who do you think is in view here? Who's he talking about? The Jews, right? It's an evident Jewish tone. And so he draws in the Jews and says, remember this great guy, Abraham, our father, the one who was the progenitor, the, the, the greatest of us all, Abraham. Look at him. In the Greek text, Abraham, our father, is moved to the front of the verse for emphasis. Take note of this guy. Don't miss him as an illustration of faith that is uh, uh, of a person that is justified by works. To a Jewish audience, this would be undoubtedly a point of agreement because in Jewish literature, extra-biblical Jewish literature, he is the epitome of faith and works. He's the one that epit uh, epitomizes what it means to work faith. Therefore, the use of Abraham here is very strategic. But then look at verse 25. And in the same way also Rahab the prostitute. He's just taken this great guy and equaled him to this woman, Rahab, who's a harlot. What has he just done? You revere this guy? Well, let me show you exactly the kind of faith that he has. What a shock to the system. Now, there are those who say that James is using this, Abraham, our father, in the same way that Paul uses it in Galatians chapter 3, I believe it's verse 10, 8 or 10, I can't remember, as those who are sons of faith or sons of Abraham. By now, you should be able to immediately say no. Why not? James writes before Paul writes. When do the Gentiles get added? AD 49. When is this book written? Between AD 40 and AD 45. So clearly, he does not have the Gentiles being added into the church. So he's not thinking the wide scope lens as 
Father Abraham, as we would call him uh, today, but as the Jewish father of the nations, of the nation. He wants to draw them into this familiar figure, this revered man, and then show them that his faith worked in justification. Last week I said that James counters the idea that this kind of faith, a faith that, that's dependent on a system of works, and that kind of works cannot save. Now think about this. Our father Abram. When was Abram justified? Before you can call him a Jew. Think about that. He's not using him as a Jewish illustration but as one who preceded the law illustration. And then Rahab was one who lived outside the canopy of the law. She was a harlot in what? Canaan. So two icons who have no relationship to the law, and he says, look at this. You are depending on the system of the law to bring you to God? And he says, no. Look at these two guys. Well, guy and a girl. They did not have any relation to the law, but their faith alone, so I should say, their works in the terms of of James, justified them. And I will explain that in a moment. So blank slate when it comes to the law. So you can't make the claim that the law is necessary for salvation. Right, let's move on. I'm building towards this justification by works because it is heavy verse 21 was not our father Abraham justified by works I've specifically chosen not to deal with other passages thus far in this text because of the confusing nature when we overlay other passages over a text and derive meaning from the text through other passages That can be confusing. This morning, however, I'm going to do a bit of a comparison. I'm going to take Paul and show you how Paul and James iron out this theological difficulty for us. When you understand Paul through the eyes of Paul and James through the eyes of James. So what does he mean when he says that Abraham was justified by works to help you understand that? I'm going to show you how Paul understands justification and then we'll get to James and show you how James understands justification. So when Paul speaks about justification, he speaks about a forensic legal declaration of acquittal. I know it's a mouthful. Turn over to Romans chapter 4. It's a legal term that relates to what God does on our behalf. Immediately you will notice that there is a bit of a contradiction here. Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what the scripture Uh, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. Doesn't that sound familiar? Yes. That just went off. It's exactly the same phrase as is found in um, uh, James chapter 2. But notice here in verse 2 of Romans, Paul says, if 
Abraham was justified by faith, then yes, he would be able to wave in God's face, see, I worked for my salvation. You can't take my salvation away from me. I achieved my salvation. But James says the opposite. No, he says, Abraham was justified by what? Works. Now, naturally, there should be a conflict. How can you be saying you are not justified by works? And in the other passage, it says you are justified by works. Is there a conundrum? Is there a contradiction in Scripture? Well, no. Not if James is saying something completely different to Paul. The problem is, there are scholars who have tried to make James say what Paul says by changing the meaning of what James says. Oh, he doesn't really mean justified by works. Yes, he does. That's what he says. Now, if it is true that justification, sorry, I should say, it is true that justification in most cases deals with a forensic legal act of acquitting the guilty and mostly found in Pauline literature, and this is done when God imputes the righteousness of his son to the sinner. It's a divine transaction whereby the eternally guilty, that is you and I, uh, the eternally guilty, the, our guilt and our judgment is transferred to Jesus and his perfect righteousness is, is transferred to us. So there's a transaction that takes place in justification. Why does this take place? Why? Because apart from that divine transaction that God does on our behalf, the undeserving, unrighteous sinner will never be able to have a relationship with God the Father. So in order to stand before God, there needs to be a dealing with the guilt and the judgment of the sinner. And so God does that by dealing, or taking your sin and your guilt and placing it onto the Son, and taking the righteousness of the Son and placing it onto you. And then in judging the Son, He judges your guilt and deals with your judgment. Make sense? That is what the legal act of justification implies. Romans 2 shows that God will just, justly judge or righteously judge those with the law and those outside of the law. Chapter 3 of Romans says that we have no righteousness of our own. But look at chapter 3 verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Why does he do this? Jump down to verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he may be just and the justifier, the one who legally declares the acquittal and the removal of the judgment of the sinner, of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So from Paul's perspective, when justification is used, it is God who justifies the sinner. Look at Verse uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, passive, takes place to us. 
We don't justify ourselves. That's Pauline understanding. That's the forensic act of justification. It is by faith and never by works, ever. Now, with that in mind, that is not what James is talking about. Go back to James and listen to the difference in language. Chapter 2. In Pauline literature, when he speaks about justification, it is something that takes place to the individual. Now take note what he says in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? That's a completely different sentence. Justified by works when he did something. If James is using justification as Paul uses justification with regards to the legal transaction, then yes, we have a contradiction in Scripture. Then Scripture is combating each other and not saying the same thing. But James is not saying what Paul is saying. Paul uses it in a forensic legal sense, but James uses it in the, uses it in the sense of vindication. James, sorry, Paul, justification, James, vindication. So, let me prove this. Turn over to Luke chapter 10, verse 29. I'm going to prove to you that this word, justification, can be used outside its technical sense to mean vindicate. Some of you may know this story. Chapter 10, verse uh, 29. Of the Rich young ruler, is it 1029? Um, let me see if I can find it. Uh, it's the rich young ruler, so it's, yeah, it could be 17. Uh, give me some time. No, it's not 17. Oh, no, no, that's a rich man in Lazarus in 16. Uh, I will find it. If not, I will move on to my next point. Okay, I don't see it. Yeah, uh, the rich fool, let me see, is it verse 29? Let me move on. I'm not going to, Luke 16. Hopefully this one is right. Look at verse 15. I will see if I can get the other, other verse. Maybe Matthew that I'm thinking of. Um, Pharisees in verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. He was criticizing how they were dishonest in dealing with people's money and God's resources. And he says, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but, but God knows your heart. What's that word there? It's exactly the same word as James uses. So are they trying to cause a legal declaration upon themselves? No. They're trying to vindicate themselves. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3, probably the strongest argument.
Look at verse 15. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, speaking about Jesus Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. Now, if you have a, margin, a, a Bible with marginal notes or footnotes, what is that word vindicate? It's justified. Now, are we going to say that Jesus was justified as in a legal declaration by God? No. That's not what it means in the sense. It means that he was shown to be true. He was ratified or verified or confirmed by the Spirit. That's the sense of the justification. And what this proves then is that you can have the word be used in its legal sense and you can have it be used in a more general sense. So what do you think James is saying in James chapter 2 when he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? He's not talking about Paul's legal use of justification. What he is talking about is the vindication that is demonstrated by Abraham. So I think it makes sense. The question then is this. Did not Abraham prove his work or prove his faith by his work? Did not Abraham vindicate his faith by his works? That is the sense that James is using it in. And I know some of you are wishing that there was a Wednesday to come back and discuss this. You can, next year. This does not mean and never meant that Abraham was justified by means of his works in the legal sense. Because that would be a contradiction in Scripture. But rather, what James is merely showing is that there is a a vindication, a proof, a demonstration of our faith. Here he provides biblical proof that living faith, saving faith, faith works through works. Now, there's an internal proof. Look at verse 22. You see that faith was active along with his works. Not in salvation. His faith was completed by his works. He's not talking about coming to salvation. He's talking about demonstrating salvation. That is what James is after this is different to saying that Abraham, our father, was justified, that he saved by his works. No, he's saying that he was vindicated by his works. He was shown to be genuine. Now, take note of the word works. For those of you grammarians, is that singular or plural? Simple, right? It's plural. In fact, works is plural throughout this section. And I held off from mentioning that. Why? Because it is tremendously significant in how he makes his argument about Abraham. This plural form of the work here identifies an ongoing activity. So if Abraham was justified with regards to salvation um, uh, by works, it meant that he had to do a lot of things to be saved. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying since he was saved, he demonstrated his faith by a lot of what? Works. But 
He doesn't give us a lot of works. Take note of his illustration. When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Um, in, in hermeneutics, there is something that is called a cultural script. And this is known because John, who is a Jew, writes to Jews in both his epistles. And interestingly, he leaves out a lot of things. He doesn't need to explain it. James does the same thing. Why? Same audience as the author. Um, we as uh, South Africans would do that as well. Um, if I say that A.B. de Villiers is the greatest player of all time, I don't need to fill in the details. Why? Because those of you who are cricket fanatics already have a cultural script. You filled in the details automatically. You knew it was about cricket. You knew it was about batting, right? I didn't need to say that. That is what a cultural, cultural script does. James does this in James chapter 2. When he offered up his son, Isaac, on the altar, nothing else mentioned. Well, what do you think they are going to think about? Genesis chapter 12 or Genesis chapter 22. Well, he says works, but he gives a singular act because he's not just thinking about the singular act. So go to Genesis chapter 12 and let's fill in the history that these Jews know by nature as a part of their cultural script. What does James mean when he says that Abraham demonstrated or vindicated his faith by means of his works? Look at Genesis chapter 12. Verse 1. Now the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What is this? Abrahamic covenant part one. Look at what Abraham does in verse four. So Abraham went. What do you call that? Faith in action. God says, Abraham, pack your stuff. Go to a country and I will show you. You don't know where it is yet. I'm going to show you. What does Abraham do? He packs his stuff and starts walking. Why? Because God said so. Jump over to chapter 17. At this time, when this call happens, Abraham is 75 years old. Keep that in mind. 75 years old. Jump over to Genesis chapter 17. Abraham is 90 years old. Look at verse 9, timestamp. When Abraham was 99, sorry, not 90, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. God reaffirms the covenant. I started the covenant. I didn't finish the discussion. Abraham believed. And he followed. But look now at verse 19. God said, No, but Sarah your wife shall bear you a son, 
And you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Interesting. God says, so now my covenant will be through your offspring. And he's going to have a son that will be called Isaac. Fifteen years later, after the initial command of, or the giving of the covenant. Look at verse 22. When he had finished talking with God, uh, with, with him, God went up from Abram. Personal community, if you remember the discussion this morning in, uh, in uh, Shantan's lesson, there was, prior to Moses, personal interaction between God and man. That changes post-Moses. It's not as frequent. But here God speaks with him and tells him face to face, listen, I'm going to give you a son. And this son will be the sign of the fulfillment of my covenant and I will run through him the promise. You will have a son. Now, jump over to chapter 22. Just to sketch you a time date um, picture, in chapter 23, Sarah is 127 years old. She is 99 when she bears um, Isaac. Yes, she was old. 99 when she bears Isaac. Abram's 100. This is 28 years later after bearing Isaac. So somewhere between being a young man um, from our terms or a child from their terms, he's 15 to 20 in chapter 22. He's somewhere between 15 and 20. He's called a boy when he's a teenager in our eyes, right? He's called a boy. Well, if you're living to 100, then when you're 15, you're still a lighty. You're still a snotkop. And that's how they viewed younger men. Now, when you were still a 15, no. You were a boy. Anyway, so being between 15 and 20, God says to him, verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 1, After these things, God tested Abraham. And I'm going to explain that in a moment's time. He said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. That is called emphasis. He only has to say son. Why? Because he has one son. But God is pressing down the idea that, listen, you are invested in this one because he's the son of promise. Take that one that I've promised to you, who I have given to you. Take him and go kill him. That is heavy. In fact, it is worse than that. Look at the language. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a what? Burnt offering on the mountains, which I will tell you. What on earth? Yes, that is child sacrifice. And we are cringing at that. Because how on earth will God ever accept child sacrifice? Keep that in mind. Pause, pause. Don't leave church yet. I'm not saying God wants child sacrifice. But God is asking him to do just that. There is no other way to interpret it. Take your child, go kill him. In fact, offer him as a sacrifice on the altar. 
What a horrendous, audacious request of God. Don't freak out yet. Oh, wow, my time is almost done. I haven't even started the sermon. (laughs) Don't forget this is a trial. It tells us that. And God tested Abram. This is not a test to sin. Because trials are not testing to sin. James already dealt with that. God never leads us to sin, right? So this cannot mean that God is testing him to sin. So God is not testing the fact that he will do the thing. So what is God then testing? His faith. His faith. So keep it in mind. The call is, go kill your son. Offer him as a sacrifice. But it's not that that God is after. God is actually after his faith. Wait. Abraham's faith is being tested. But from Abraham's point of view, get this, when Abraham hears the voice of God and he says to him, Abraham, take your son. Okay, where to? To the mountain. I will show you. Okay, let's go. Why? Abraham believes God and he responds to God regardless of the request. Look at, where is it? Verse 3. So Abram rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took his, son, uh, took his young man with him and his son Isaac, cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place which God had told him. What do you call that? Obedience. I don't know if you get it yet. God is saying to him, Abram, I'm asking you the most difficult thing in your life the son of promise, the one that I gave to you, go kill him. In fact, go do the unthinkable. Offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham, being the man that he is, says, yes, Lord, let's go. That's hard. The, the, The weight of this is revealed in that it's a three-day journey. <laughs> when you took the lamb, you took him to the altar, you slaughtered him. He may go, ah. you don't understand what he says, and you don't care because he's a lamb, right? doesn't matter what he says. The sacrifice, he's talking. He's asking Abraham, Father, just tell me. I see the wood. I see the fire. I see that we are going to make an offering. Well, tell me. This makes me think, what is going to be killed? You can see Abram's faith. Look at verse 5. Abram said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and what? Worship. And come again to you. Doesn't matter how it pans out. God will be honored and glorified in it, and we will come back. Hang on. He was just told to kill his son. This doesn't matter. I know my God. Look down at verse uh, 8. Abram said, this is to the sacrifice that he's talking back to him. And Abram said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. They both went together. If you haven't seen it yet, then it's probably not as clear to you as it should be. Then I failed you. Abraham demonstrated his faith 
throughout. Why? Because God said it and Abraham did it. Didn't matter the ridiculous nature of the request. If God says so, I am going to do so. I know that is bad grammar, grammar, but it's in my notes. I'm going to say it that way. God says so, okay, let's go. Let's do it. Why? Because he trusts his God. So much so that even if God asks him to ask him to kill his son, Abraham has sufficient faith to know that this God who gave him as a, a promise to his as, as offspring, as a promise to the covenant, God will somehow revive him and bring him back so that the covenant will stand. God is not going to move from his covenant. Abram knows this about God, so it doesn't matter that he's asked to kill his son. Something is going to change. Something's going to happen. I believe that my God can do it, and he will provide for himself a sacrifice. I don't know if you caught that. It is not that he will provide for me a sacrifice. He will provide for himself. A sacrifice because the act of offering an animal on the altar is what? Worship. Worship. What did he say? We will go and worship. Abraham understood from the get-go. I know that this is God's request. And even if I kill my son, God will still provide an offering for worship. That is faith. That is believing in the character of God and acting upon it. Now, look at verse 10. You can feel the drama in these words. And Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife. You can see it, right? ready to slaughter his son. That's a strong, one of the strongest words for murdering, killing his somebody. Ready to take the life of his son. But it is God who calls out to Abraham and says, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay a hand on your son. Why does God let him get that far? Because God needed to prove the quality of the faith of Abraham. Well, that's a liquor jingle. <laughs> it is not Abraham that stops. It is not Abraham that says, Lord, I'm not comfortable with this. It's not Abraham that withdraws his hand. He is ready to kill the son. Why? Because he has absolute faith that God will fulfill his covenant. What is the covenant? You will have an offspring, you will have a people. And you will have an everlasting covenant. doesn't matter if he dies. Listen to Hebrews. I'll just quote it to you. Abraham believed that God would raise his son from the dead. Abraham was ready to see the first resurrection. He's like, let's go. If you say that I have to kill my son so that the promise will be fulfilled, let's go and do it. That is faith at work. It is God who stops him. Why? Because Abraham would obey the voice of God regardless of the request. Get that. That is the point. He would obey God no matter the request. And was this a ridiculous request? Yes. Was this outside the norm? Yes. Because God never receives child sacrifice. So let me deal with that before I finish. God was not going to allow um, Abraham to kill his son. 
He wasn't going to accept the child's sacrifice. But that has never been the point. The test was not, let me see if you kill the son. He wasn't going to kill the son. God wasn't going to let that happen. But God was going to put his faith on display. That is the whole point of the entire event. Let me show you what living faith looks like. Let me demonstrate to you what active obedience looks like. If God says it, I'm going to do it. If God requires it, I will fulfill it. God is sovereign, and he knows that this will put him in a bad light, and people will look to this and say, well, your God is willing to receive child sacrifice. God knows that. He's okay with that. He doesn't need to protect himself because he knows he was going to accept. He was not going to accept child sacrifice. We don't need to fight to protect God when God says things about himself. God is okay with people thinking the worst of him in this because he's not a ghoulish God who requires or a bloodthirsty God who requires child child sacrifice. And let me just make this clear. God is not going to test your faith by giving you visions to say, go kill your son. If he's telling you to do that, there is something wrong with you. Please come and speak to us. God is not, and he's never followed this pattern again. Why? Because the, the point was not to kill the son. The point was to put on display the faith of Abraham. So don't get the picture wrong here. You know what? there's this idea that you can just go from reading the text to application. Well, how do you apply that? Explain that to me. How do you go from reading, oh, Abraham has to kill his son? How do you apply that? That is not the application. The application that you can follow is the obedient aspect of Abraham's faith. That is the point that God is making. Not the fact that he's going to call you to kill his son or your son. Anyway, moving on. Abraham had obedient faith, and that was the point. But how long did he have obedient faith? I gave you a chronology. He was 75 when God called him. He was about 110, uh, roundabout, when he has to kill, maybe 120, when he has to kill, um, or almost kill, Isaac. Scholars differ between this, but they say it's between 40 and 50 years. Hmm. From the moment of the call to Abraham, from the moment of the first part of the covenant, Abraham remained faithfully obedient to his God. That's the point that James is making. Go back to James chapter 2. And I will show you that he actually connects the two events. Notice it was he does. He places the latter part of the event in the beginning. He says, Was not Abraham our father vindicated by works? Plural. The ongoing this demonstration of um, being saved. When he offered up his son Isaac, jump down to verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. When did that happen? When he was 75. He was declared right at the beginning when he believed God. When did, he, when was God, when, when did God ask him to kill him? Almost 40 or 50 years later. 
What's the point in that? Did not Abraham demonstrate his faith by means of works? Yes. At the end, when he was called to, to nearly kill his son, what does he do? He obeys the word of God. He obeys the call of God. It's the same faith that he had when he was 75, 50 years later, or 40 years later, whichever way you want to go. Let's say 50 years later, Abraham was still obedient to his God. And that's the point that James makes. By works, the works, the only thing he mentions is that single event, but what he ma- the point that he's trying to make is throughout his life, from the very get-go, Abraham demonstrated obedient faith. How do I know that for sure? Look at verse 22. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Faith was, faith was working through his work. That's what he's saying. Faith precedes the works. Faith was working. It's a uh, compound word that means working alongside his works to do what? To show the quality of the faith. And faith was completed. That is matured by his works. Was demonstrated to be true, genuine, saving faith. I need to finish. God is not going to ask us to kill our children to demonstrate our faith. That's not the point. However, you can be sure that God will refine your faith through affliction, through trials. You can follow Abraham's expression of faith here by doing whatever God requires, by obeying what God says, no matter the cost, no matter the outcome, outcome, no matter the personal loss. Be willing to do what God says. True faith will be matured through hardship, but dead faith cannot stand affliction. That is the point that James is trying to make in this entire section, verse 24. You see that a person is vindicated by works and not by faith alone. It's the same point that he's been making all along. A person that claims to know God but never demonstrates it, he is not saved. But a person that claims to know God and lives as if he has obedient faith, that person is justified or vindicated by his works. Genuine faith will be an ongoing, obedient faith throughout the person's life. That is what he's saying. It's not just the moment that is in view where he has to sacrifice Isaac, but the entirety of his life is synonymous of a person who believes and acts upon God's word. I hope that it's home. When God speaks, he requires those who claim faith to respond in obedience. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are patient with us.
We know we don't always mimic the faith of Abraham. We don't always demonstrate it in the way that he does. And we can assuredly say that you will not ask us to kill our family just to demonstrate our faith. But you will put our faith through the rigor and the trials and the fire of life. Why? To demonstrate to us that we belong to you. You do not need to be convinced that we are saved. You know that. And so the testing of our faith is not for you, but for us. And so, Lord, we pray that if you are taking us as a church and individuals in this church through hardship and affliction and difficulty in life, may our faith stand the test. May we demonstrate and vindicate our faith by the works that comes from us. Lord, forgive us where we are unfaithful. Change us that we may live in a way that honors you and brings glory to you alone as we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.